My mom, now dancing with Jesus, used to say, it takes two to tangle. This statement usually showed up when any two of her ten kids were in a fight. (laughs) One of us would claim innocence. (laughs) Hey, I I probably was innocent. (laughs) Anyway, she would claim we were both to blame because it takes two to tangle. That's kind of like Bill Cosby said, parents don't want justice, they want quiet. (laughs) So mom would say, it takes two to tangle. But she was being unreasonable. She was wrong. (laughs) The real quote that my mom hijacked was, it takes two to tangle. Now that is true. I entreat Yodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. A lifetime ago, the English people just wanted to have peace. You can't really blame them. Every adult in Britain had suffered through World War I, the war to end all wars. And it was truly horrible. And now Hitler was demanding that Austria be made a part of Germany or they would face war. So Prime Minister Chamberlain told the people of Austria to be reasonable and let the Nazis have your country. Then we won't have war. In America, we were at peace and we wanted to keep it that way. Let's be reasonable. It's not reasonable to go to war. So our country refused to enter World War II. But the Japanese, their rulers saw Americans as weak. It works this way. For any two nations to have peace, both have to desire peace. For any two nations to have war, it only takes one to seek war to be unreasonable. My mom, bless her little heart, was wrong. It does take two to execute a beautiful romantic tangle. But it only takes one to cause a tangle. (laughs) Britain thought if they wanted peace, that'd be enough. That'll work. Americans believed if we just keep to ourselves, we can live in peace. Both nations learned a very hard lesson. There is no peace when even one nation wants war. And two or more children will find that peaceful play requires every child to cooperate. (laughs) A single child can cause remarkable turmoil. (laughs) Well, let me get Yodi and Syntyche off the hook here. As we discussed last time we visited this letter to the Philippian believers... These two women were probably quite mature. Paul's willingness to publicly name them probably indicated they could take it to be publicly named. So their disagreements were likely more in the way of preference, like what kind of music should we sing in church? How should the service flow? Do we do door-to-door evangelism or do we each do personal evangelism? That, that's the kind of questions, that's the kind of disagreement they were probably facing. 
If there was any sin, it was probably that they let their disagreement get out of hand (laughs) rather than the uh, conflict being caused by one of them sinning against the other. But what happens if we get into a real tangle? (laughs) What do we do when one person wants war? How should we respond to real, unabashed sin? Okay. It takes two people to share mutual love. It only takes one to have animosity. We talk a lot around here about loving mutually and being willing to forgive one another. What do you do when someone else doesn't want to love? When they don't care about your forgiveness? And they're they're sure not going to change what they do just because you think they ought to. Christians usually pretend that they're being biblical no matter what. You know. <laughs> so if someone is sinning, they'll for sure blame the other person. But how do we show love to a fellow believer when they aren't interested in proper love? How do we form boundaries for our love in a way that is godly, that is to say, true, honorable, just, pure, How do we express love to an unlovely person? Aren't we supposed to love people no matter what? (laughs) Well, yeah. Love is to be given completely unfettered. Completely. But the expression of love, the expressions of love, must be controlled. To say it another way, all love has boundaries. All love limits within which it must be kept. In each and every relationship, we need to establish and defend boundaries. Our love for God has boundaries. <laughs> true. It's, it's true. You have to come to God on His terms, not your own. He is the creator of all things, right? <laughs> Now, perhaps you hadn't thought about it, but God's love for us has boundaries. The Father cannot love us, as mere creatures that we are, like He can love the Spirit or the Son, who share His divine nature. Each of the persons in the Trinity shares a single nature. We do not. There is no way for the Father to love us in the same way He loves the Son and the Holy Spirit. So He has to bound His love for us under these constraints. And if our relationship with our Creator and His with us must be expressed correctly, certainly every relationship between two or more creatures will have to be bounded. So how would we love other Christians not just who do not want to express love properly in a properly bounded way? What do we do? Unlike our sisters in Philippi, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. <laughs> and Paul had to write them a few very tough letters. In these letters, Paul deals with one particular situation of a person where some tough loving <laughs> was the order of the day. A man who, shall we say, considered boundaries other people's problems. (laughs) Is that a nice way to say that? I'd like to start at the end of the problem and work back to the beginning. 
you're a sequential person and I'm driving you crazy, I'm sorry, but it does work out. Just hang with me here. So let's pick it up at the second letter we have from Paul to the Corinthians. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now, remember that Paul is talking about correcting a problem of unbounded expression of love by them, as well as this one person. So it's of sin they are committing. He was berating them. But not, he says, to cause pain. That's not his intent. His correction, he says, was in fact an expression of abundant love. And the pain that some guy caused, don't worry about me. That's what he says. Don't worry about me. It's not me you need to worry about. It's how what he did caused you pain that concerns me. Can you see what a wonderful leader that Paul is? His concern is with the pain of those that he leads. Well-expressed love is concerned not with one's own interests, but with the interests of others. Remember, we've been there just shortly ago. Concerning this one who had caused pain, they had dealt with him as Paul instructed. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. Punishment? Punishment? This is an expression of love? (laughs) To oppose, I guess we could say, another Christian? Well, it sounds like it. But apparently they hadn't stopped punishing him. (laughs) That's why Paul says it's enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. So we started at the end and we're working towards the beginning because we always need to remember that there is a good end if we express love properly. It does work out. We should point out that it might be heaven for some people before it gets right. Okay, It may work that way for some people. But they do get it in the end. And there is the very real possibility that people will get it here in this life. In fact, we'll see soon enough that Jesus said as much. So Paul. Paul had written earlier to tell them to correct this man, which we'll get to shortly. Uh, But in talking about their overzealous execution of his instructions, he says, For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. First, it's a test. Okay. It's a test. I wrote to you, it's a test. Next week when James Allen speaks about choices, he talks about how every believer has a choice. And every choice, in fact, is a test. This is something God has set up for us. But as to the man in question, Paul intended to forgive this man, he said. This was his intention. Now, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ, so so we're not really sure how much of what he can do extends to what we can do. But for sure, he says, heaven backs him up in his forgiveness towards this man. Heaven backs me up. I'm with Jesus on this. That's what he said. 
And oh, by the way, it is to your benefit that I have forgiven. How does that work, Paul? Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgave, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. First, it's a spiritual battle. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. The war, he says, is not against humans. It is against Satan. The existence of a spiritual realm is, in fact, accepted by most of the world. The nature of that realm, Christianity is very different. There is one God who has created creatures both that live in that dimension and in this dimension. And those in that dimension can, in fact, affect those in this dimension. That's the claim of Christianity. So this evil one is constantly trying to push us. If he can't push us to sin, then he pushes us to, in this case, keep punishing people when we ought to restore the fellowship that we have, in fact, cut off now that they have repented. So we must not be outwitted by Satan. And the first step is an understanding that it's Satan and his hordes whom we fight. But it's people that seem to battle with us. <laughs> uh, so how does this work? And how do we actually carry this off? What do we do? And we'll get to the details as we work backwards to the story. So hang with me. Be patient. Basically, though, we are free moral agents. And some people, even some Christians, let Satan use them as weapons. They may not know it, but when they gossip or lie or whatever, they are being used by Satan. Or maybe they do really unspeakable things like the man in Corinth. Here's the sin. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Wow. Yuck. <laughs> you know, we don't have any problems like that. Thank you, Jesus. The important and very sad thing to remember is that this was a Christian man. We're not talking some guy. This is a Christian man. Christians can and sometimes do commit terrible sins. It does happen. Okay, how does this have anything to do with us? Shouldn't we just live and let live? Why do we have to do anything about it? In fact, the Corinthian believers thought, Aren't we expressing unfettered love by being tolerant and letting this man keep coming to our church even though he is being pretty terribly gross in his sin? Aren't we doing the good thing here? And in fact, they were very proud of themselves for their tolerance. And I'm guessing you probably, I'm thinking you probably guessed where Paul would go with this. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Tolerance of sin is a sin. You know, when it's wrong, it's wrong. The church is not a person, not one person. 
It is the body of Christ. They, all of the church in Corinth, ought to mourn, he says, for the sin that's in, right in there with you guys. We should feel both sorrow and shame if sin is among us. We should. We should. And we should do something about it. This horrible sin needed some drastic action. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus... May I stop for just a moment? (laughs) This is really important. Paul says, call a congregational meeting. That's what he's saying. And I've already made the decision, so it's not like you're making a decision here. I'm telling you what to do. Well, he's an apostle, you know. He can do that. And now we can get to it. What does he want them to do at the meeting? You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Whoa. That's some pretty harsh language. Paul's saying, kick him out of the church. You are not serious. <laughs> Did you just hear him? What? Yeah, he's serious. Understand, by the way, he's not talking about the man's salvation. Membership, attendance in a church, doesn't equate to salvation. You, you aren't saved because you go to church. No mere human can say another is or is not a Christian. That's, we can't do that. Paul is talking about the local church, the organization. When you get together, he says, kick him out so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Okay, Paul, how, how can this be good? <laughs> how can this help? Well, well, we'll get back to that as we move towards the beginning. The destruction of the flesh, he says. Some translations use the English words sinful nature, the sinful nature. Same Greek word he used in saying that we do not fight against flesh and blood. It's the human nature he is talking about. A human nature easily influenced by Satan's words. We have to remember who is behind this war. (laughs) Now you notice that Paul is saying this particular sinning, the believer's ultimate good is dependent on their carrying out Paul's instructions and kicking him out of the church. Did you catch that? If you care for this guy, his eternal good, the day of the Lord stuff, that's the end of the age. If you want him saved in the day of the Lord, kick him out of your church. Wow. But the purpose of this letter is to help the church in Corinth. So what effect does their present inaction have on the church? Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. little baking metaphor here. And this is Paul's command to them. This is the command section, so we better kind of look at it carefully. There are only three parts, right? First, don't tolerate evil. (laughs) Simple enough. They were boasting because they had such great love that they put up with anything. (laughs) Have you ever to parents who boasted that they never punished their child? Even when he's just beaned some kid on the head and sent him to the hospital? Never punish our child. We never do that. Yeah, give him about 10 or 15 years when and then they'll be visiting him in jail. Let's, let's be serious. That's gonna be, that is what's going to happen. 
Now, don't, don't do that. Don't tolerate evil in the church. Part two, don't tolerate the evil because if you do, it will spread. <laughs> okay. Have you ever put yeast in bread? Have you ever made your own dough? It's amazing, a little bit. And have you ever noticed how successful people, they seem to always have other successful people as friends. But they don't pick them after they become successful. They've always been their friends. Well, how come they're all successful? You can't believe how many professional athletes have a friend in the sport that they grew up with. Well, how can that be? Well, success breeds success. But, Paul's point is, evil breeds evil. It's a wise man who says, I need to dump those friends because it'll lead me to where I don't want to go. That's a wise man. And note, by the way, he did use yeast as a metaphor. He'll come back to that, and, and so will we. But just remember, yeast in this picture he's using is a symbol of sin. Okay? So third, remove the evil influence so that it doesn't infect others. That's what it means to the church. And this was a very evil influence. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You really are, he says, unleavened. Remember, leaven is a picture of sin. So he's saying, you don't have sin in your lives. Uh, <laughs> Okay, obviously he's not talking about any sin at all, right? I mean, they're humans. You only have to read the letter to discover how many significant issues these people have. <laughs> but Christ has been sacrificed. Their sins, he's saying, are forgiven. So, he says, what are you doing letting new sin into your lives? Or rather, Letting that old sin you used to do back into your lives. Why are you doing this? Celebrate the festival. What festival? He's talking about the Lord's Supper, what we call communion. The time when they were to remember that Jesus died for them. Communion is based on the Passover meal. The bread in those meals had to be pure. No yeast. Remember, yeast is a symbol of sin. The Passover meal is all about forgiveness of sins and how it would be effected in the future. The Passover lamb had to be pure. No blemish. I had to watch him for two weeks to make sure there was no blemish on this lamb. It had to be perfect. And the Passover lamb, Christ, was perfect. So we must be in sincerity and truth, he said. Does that not remind you of strikingly of Paul's admonishment to another church to think about the true, honorable, just, and pure, as we talked about last week? All right, back to the problem in Corinth. Now, Paul refers to some other letter he wrote to them. We don't, we don't have a copy of that particular letter. And they clearly misunderstood a part of that letter, so he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So he's saying, think people, <laughs> that can't be what I meant. They must have thought he meant don't associate with non-Christians at all. Don't, don't talk to them. 
and we already know, they appear to have thought that it was a great thing that they kept their association with Christians even when they were living vile lives. You know, well, aren't we supposed to love one another? <laughs> Be tolerant of one another? That's... But Paul is talking real love, love that does not cross proper boundaries. But I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Yet the list goes on, but... He says, if I wasn't clear before, I will be now. Don't associate with a believer guilty of, in this case, sexual immorality. The rest of the list we'll get to in a moment. But why, why did I stop with the first one? Not just that it was that one man's problem, but in Paul's writing, we find nine lists of vices, what you might call sinless. There's nine of them in Paul's writings. Sexual immorality is first in eight of the nine. And the other list, it's at the center <laughs> with impurity and sensuality. Wow. At the very least, the improper expression of sexual behavior is a primary element of life in the flesh. And this is certainly true in our country today. The difference between when I was young and now is phenomenal. So our culture is gone, and I think that possibly sexual immorality is the distinctive characteristic of those living in the flesh. The first place that sin goes, if you will. First place. Now, it's true that the most abused relationship issue, relational issue of our day is the expression of love sexually. But for believers, Paul says, this is simply unacceptable. The writer of the Hebrews wrote, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Good news, by the way. <laughs> Since it's unlikely that any of us are, in fact, perfect in this way, uh, even within marriage, you can get it wrong, God has provided a means for forgiveness of our sins. Even this sin. Maybe especially this sin. Just don't pretend this or any sin is okay. It's not okay. Don't pretend like the Corinthian church did. But let's get back to Paul's point of love expressed with boundaries. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality. Wait, Paul, you mean we're supposed to be more strict with those who claim to be Christian than with those who don't? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. There's a greater responsibility for those who live by the Spirit. We have the Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit within us. Sinners are sinners. <laughs> Their very nature is sin and self-oriented. Of course they're going to take advantage of each other. But we're not supposed to let each other get away with things like that. We're supposed to hold each other to a higher standard. In Corinth, they were letting one man live in a particularly despicable way. But now Paul goes beyond that specific issue to the list I mentioned earlier. But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Wait a minute, Paul. Any one of those sins can be reasons to stop associating with another believer. We have to be aware that Paul is working off some instruction that Jesus gave. Okay, We'll get to that in a moment. 
For now, let's take a look at this list. Sexual sin in general, we talked about greed. You know, and I've, I'm sure you have too. Seen poor people, they can express greed just as great, to great a degree as the rich people. Doesn't matter how much money you got, greed can get you. Or an idolater. Well, that's anyone who puts anything above God and His Word. When someone makes a decision to do what the Bible says not to do or to not do what the Bible says to do, that is idolatry. If a believer does this, we need to hold them to account. A reviler is an abusive person, primarily in a verbal sense, but certainly physical abuse would obviously qualify. And by the way, can we make a special note right here? Separation in marriage is biblically supported if any of those sins are present in one spouse. You can't believe how many women are abused and say, I can't leave him, he's my husband. No, not only can you, that you are sinning if you do not. You know, this is serious stuff. And the purpose of separation is to drive, in, in this case, the offending spouse to correct living. More on that in a moment. Drunkenness points to any debilitating addiction. Swindlers, commonly used to business misdealings, of course, but... Fascinating, by the way. It's not always driven by greed. You'd think so, but it's not. Sometimes sending people, they just want to control everybody else. <laughs> and cheating somebody proves they've got control over them. They've got the upper hand, at least in their perverted minds. And these are not the only sins that might be grounds for thrusting a person out of the church. Paul mentions those who will not work in Second Thessalonians and then says, and anything else in this letter that they won't obey. That Anything qualifies. <laughs> so... What sins might qualify as bad enough to cause a separation from the church? Well, first, all sins. Gossip, it certainly qualifies. And get special uh, attention <laughs> in Scripture, by the way. Especially, can I tell you a pet peeve? It was a church we had with a lot of very young Christians. And gossip in public prayer, you know, oh God, help poor Mabel. You know how she is with those oversexed dresses that she wears. <laughs> What? That's gossip. That's a sin. Don't do that. You know, God help our poor president. Man, he's a low-life, Muslim-loving, liberal commie. Okay. That's sin. Don't, don't pray like that. That's sin. That's gossip. And let us never publicly pray like that. Gossip is any talk about another person that does not have as its intent the betterment of that person. Any talk that does not have the betterment of that person as its function. So please, don't let anybody in this church be guilty of gossip. And I make a promise to you that if I ever catch you in a public prayer, I'll, I'll, I'll get you. <laughs> and please, if I ever do, don't let me get away with it. And if you're not sure that what you're saying in a prayer really qualifies, uh, maybe we should keep our mouths shut. Just saying, okay. But I've got some good news for you on that gossip front. You know, dump it on God. <laughs> In your private prayer, you know, He already knows your heart. So just get by yourself. It's, it's not like we can hide anything from God. So when you're in your private prayer with God, you can tell Him whatever's on your mind. You know, God, that guy is such a rotten, no good jerk. I just can't. I don't even, I can hardly ask for you to help him, but man, God, he needs your help. You're in a private prayer, go for it. 
It's wonderful because God hears you and He knows your heart and, and you're being honest and nobody else is hearing you, so it's not gossip. God doesn't count. He knows everything anyway. But don't forget the boundaries of your relationship with God. Like He created you and He created that other person. <laughs> uh, and in fact, when you pray like that and actually ask God to help that person, you'll be amazed at what happens to your heart. Your heart towards that other person changes. Well, if it doesn't, maybe you better consider your relationship with God. But, <laughs> but anyway. Okay, back to our regularly scheduled sermon. Other sins that might qualify for discipline in the church. Uh, the inability to submit to authority. You know, that one can be a whole sermon by itself. Insincerity is a real problem. A pretend friendship. In the Middle East, men greeted each other with a kiss on the cheek. And that's a normal greeting in lots of parts of the world even today. But in four different places, Paul says to greet one another with a holy kiss. What? A spiritual kiss. He's saying a kiss that means that is sincere. Make it a sincere greeting. When we shake someone's hand, we're in America, we shake people's hands, don't kiss me in the cheek, I wouldn't want to have to deck you. But when we greet someone, don't just put on the happy face, okay? If you don't mean it, if you're not sincere, don't do it. Be sincere. Uh, if you aren't, you'll be crossing the boundaries of proper relationship. You'd be, if you will, living a lie. Don't, don't do that. But... That's what all this is about. It's about self-serving instead of other-serving behavior. And it's all wrong, any sin. And we are to judge those in the church who do evil things. And then what? For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. First, God has already judged sinners. It's not our job to add to it. <laughs> we don't need to do that. But we must, he says, judge those who claim Christianity. But according to Scripture. Okay, and now we can go back even further to the instructions of Jesus from which Paul is in fact working. Working our way back through the story. How should we respond to real, unabashed sin? If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, take it to the church. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Jesus is talking to Jews. That means don't talk to them anymore. <laughs> Any and every sin can end up a cause of loss of fellowship, but only after a proper process. So please, please recognize that in every case, we are trying to get people to stop their sinful behavior. That's the point to gain them back. We are trying to achieve what is good for them as well as the church as a whole. Now we cover this in detail in Becoming God's Family, so let's just brief it here. Step one, go alone to the person who sinned against you. 
you might gain them back right now. So go alone. Just the two of you try to work it out. Step two, they won't listen. So get one or two other people and talk with them. You might gain your brother back in that step. That's the hope. Step three, get everyone in the church involved. Everybody's talking to them. Everybody's trying to convince them of the right thing. The whole church. In other words, ratchet up the pressure. (laughs) That's really what he's saying, right? We might gain them back. That has actually worked. I've been involved with myself in that. Hopefully we never actually get to step four. Uh, One time in my life I was in a church where we had to. But the reality is we might have to let God take care of them. We might have to say, okay, we're done. It could happen. And if you're thinking, wow, this sounds really uncomfortable, you'd be right. (laughs) Can't we just skip this whole thing and be tolerant? Yeah, well... Look at the very next verse and see what Jesus that Jesus ties these actions to heaven also. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Paul also, remember, tied heaven and earth together in this thing. So we at least have to recognize that it is a spiritual war that we're fighting. It's important. So in one of these steps, the brother or sister listens to you and asks forgiveness. And you gain them back. And then they sin against you again. (laughs) Been there? Oh, great. Now what do we do? Well, actually, that was Peter's question. (laughs) And we we just must not leave this subject without noting Jesus' response. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? (laughs) Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Peter gets the problem. He does. But, let's face it, he thinks of himself. How much do I have to put up with God? (laughs) How much do I got to put up with with these people? Jesus says, Peter, you're not getting the point. (laughs) It's not about your rights or anything like that. It's about bringing them back to proper bounded relationship in the church. That's the point. Jesus says it is a lifetime of forgiveness, or more accurately, a lifestyle of forgiveness. There is no limit on forgiveness. You can't catch your limit when it comes to forgiveness. <laughs> he even goes on, by the way, in the next section, Matthew 18, 23 to 35, if you want to read it, to show via a story that those who do not forgive, believers who do not forgive, God will discipline even very harshly until they do forgive. You will learn to forgive. You can do it the easy way (laughs) or you can do it the hard way. But you will learn. God takes care of you. (laughs) So we can let God take care of teaching others to forgive. We can be ready to accept their apology and pour out forgiveness and love on them. Remember the Corinthian man. (laughs) 
Let's not crush other people in our zealousness for true, honorable, just, and pure lives. We do want to hold people to that, but let's not crush people in it. Paul kind of summed it all up for another church. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. And then he adds at the end, and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. He's talking about this correcting of people, this calling people to account, this saying you've got to learn to live right. Don't get tired of doing that. Don't grow weary in it. Keep at it. It will work if you don't give up. That's the promise. It will. It'll work. So it is the restoration of those who sin against us that we want to achieve. But watch out, he says, you, you too could sin. That, it's not like that isn't a real temptation. And you, by the way, are also human. Okay? When somebody else is tempted, you're not Superman. <laughs> we can all fail. So we've got to watch out. Uh, but whatever, he says, just don't stop trying. <laughs> Find some way to, to draw them back. And even if it goes so far as to mean that you have to separate from them, Cut off our relationship with them. It could happen that that's required. It's possible. Eventually, if they are truly His, God will work on their hearts. They will come back. The day of the Lord will come. They will make it. It'll be all right. It takes two to tango, <laughs> but only one to war. Some people aren't interested in reasonable living, even some Christians. For their own good, we may even have to cut off our relationship with them for a time. If they repent and come back to reasonable behavior, we need to reaffirm our love for them. Don't forget that Satan is the one behind this war. He might have soldiers, but he's driving the war. We must not tolerate sin. And we might have to talk with them before they recognize their error. It could happen. <laughs> Maybe we have to take one or two others, or even the whole church ends up being involved. Hopefully we won't have to turn them over to Satan. <laughs> but if we do, we can be sure that God will care for them. He does care for them. It'll be alright. He will correct them if that should happen. But we must never tired of doing this good thing, this calling sin, sin. It is for their best good that we obey Scripture and hold them to account. Because it takes two to tango. It takes two to have peace. Let's pray.